morning again. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you want to open up with me in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 16. We'll be continuing our study through John's Gospel this morning. If you've been with us for some time, we've been looking at this upper room discourse of our Lord found in these chapters of John's Gospel. And one Puritan described this upper room discourse as a window into Christ's heart. We've seen the care and concern that Christ has for His disciples, that in the light of His coming departure from them, He says, I'm going to the Father, I'm going to ascend into heaven. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And in light of his departure, our Lord has been preparing his disciples for the things that are to come. He's been preparing them not only for his departure, but as we saw last week, for their persecution, that they will face suffering for the sake of Christ and for the name of Christ. And so we've seen the heart of our Lord is to care for his disciples, to minister to them, and to bring them words of comfort and words of assurance. And last week we considered, namely, the great work of the Spirit against the unbelieving world. We saw that this great work of the Spirit is to convict the world. The the Spirit is going to be sent upon Christ's departure, and the Spirit is going to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, proving the world guilty in its blind unbelief. And so we saw the advantage of Christ going is that the Spirit is going to come and do this work toward the world. But what we're going to see this morning is rather the particular work of the Spirit, not towards the world, but rather towards God's people. Not toward the unbeliever, but towards Christ's people, leading and guiding them into all truth, revealing and illuminating God's Word to His people, glorifying and exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. This great work and mission of the Spirit, this work that we know only the Spirit of God can do, this internal and invisible work that the Spirit will, will bring. And as we speak even now of the Spirit, we speak of the third person of the triune God, the very Spirit of truth, as Jesus will refer to him in this passage, active, that is in the life of the church, this guiding us into all truth. And and I've titled the sermon this morning, The Mission of the Spirit. The Mission of the Spirit. And I, and I mean that word mission in two senses. The first referring to the calling and vocation, the work of the Spirit, as we'll see this morning, in glorifying Christ. This is the mission of the Spirit, to glorify the Son of God. But the second sense in which I mean this word is maybe a more technical sense. Hopefully we'll see that reflected in our passage. But the more technical sense of what's often referred to as the divine mission of the Spirit. The eternal mission of the Spirit in time, or sorry, the external mission of the Spirit in time that reveals to us the the eternal and divine mission of the Son and the Spirit. The procession of the Spirit from the Father and the Son. And hopefully we're going to see why that's important for us to consider this morning as we open up God's Word. And so what we're going to see in these verses 
is the great work and mission of the Spirit, revealing to us God's holy word, glorifying and illuminating the glory of Christ, this one who is sent from the Father and the Son for the benefit of God's people and the great comfort of Christ's church. So I'm going to begin this morning by reading at verse 12. I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus says here, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he write it upon our hearts. Let's go to our great God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and if we're honest, we come very weak, very frail, distracted in our own minds, and, and darkened to the truth of your word. And so we pray this morning that by the power of your Spirit, you would illuminate the eyes of our hearts, that you would help us to see the glory of Christ this morning and the glory of your word. And we pray this morning that as we consider and think upon these things, that you would strengthen us now, that you would equip us to to hear and understand and believe what you have for us in your word. And by the power of your spirit, you would open the eyes of our hearts to see and understand these things. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to look at three different things this morning. The first thing that we're going to consider is the special revelation of the Spirit. The special revelation of the Spirit. We'll see that in verses 12 and 13. Secondly, we'll look at the divine illumination of the Spirit in verse 14. And then finally, we'll look at the eternal procession of the Spirit. The eternal procession of the Spirit in verse 15. So we come first to the special revelation of the Spirit. We see in verse 12 the great care and concern that Christ has for his disciples and the perfect patience and compassion that he has toward them. We read in verse 12, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. (laughs) The disciples, much like us, are weak, right? They're afraid. They're troubled by what they're hearing from our Lord. They know Christ is about to depart from them. They know the persecution and the hatred that they're going to face for His name. And so they're afraid. They're weak. They cannot bear the things that our Lord is going to say. But He says that He still has much to tell them. He still has much that He's going to reveal to them much that he needs to make known to them, right? We know that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge 
And there's much that our Lord still has to say. But these great truths would only trouble them. They wouldn't bring them comfort. And so our Lord, as the good shepherd and as a good teacher, knows their hearts. He sees that they cannot bear these things now. And He shows great patience and care toward them. But if we look at verse 12, He says that you cannot bear these things now. The implication being that Christ will reveal these things at a time to come. He will make these things known in the future. But the question is, how? How is Christ going to do this? How is Christ going to speak to His people the things that are to come after He has ascended into heaven? How is Christ going to reveal to His disciples the things concerning Himself after He has departed from them? How is Christ going to lead His people into all truth after He has gone to the Father? And the answer that we see in our passage is in and by the sending of the Spirit. In and by the sending of the Spirit, whom Jesus calls here the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth leading and guiding God's people into all truth, declaring to them the things of Christ, taking what is Christ and revealing it to them. We read this in verse 13. Jesus says that when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. The Spirit, he says, speaks not on his own authority. A lot of people can get tripped up by this language. What he means here is the Spirit is going to speak not in isolation from the Father or the Son, but rather in agreement with them, having one will and one mind. Not contradicting previous revelation that had come before in the Old Testament, but rather showing its final fulfillment. And we can see, even as we read these words of our Lord, that as we look to the New Testament that we have before us, how these words of Christ have their primary fulfillment in the life and the ministry of the apostles. In the life and the ministry of the apostles. That this great revelatory work of the Spirit, revealing, declaring, guiding, finds its primary fulfillment and accomplishment in the divine and inerrant inspiration of the Scriptures and the perfect and infallible inscripturation of the New Testament. Right, The breathed-forth Word of God made known by the Spirit of God and the providential preserving of God's Word in the writing down of the New Testament. This is the great promise in verse 13 of the inspiration and the inscripturation of the New Testament. The revelation of the Spirit. The Son of God revealing Himself by the work of the Spirit of God in the sufficient and infallible Word of God. Christ Himself promising 
this special revelation of the New Testament. This is why he refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of truth, because the Spirit is revealing Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life. This is a perfect and infallible revelation of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not only true of the Old Testament, right, which was the only scriptures that they had at the time Jesus said these words, but this is also true of what we find in the New Testament revelation, in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, in the the epistles, the letters, and also in the book of Revelation. And that's really what we see promised and kind of prophesied here in the words of our Lord. And so we're going to look at four sub-points this morning as we kind of consider how the New Testament is alluded to and its completion is promised in verse 13 and beyond. First, we'll see how the Gospels are promised here. If you remember just a couple chapters before in John 14, verse 26, Jesus said these words. He said that the Spirit, when He comes, will bring to your remembrance all that I have said that the Spirit will bring to your remembrance all that I have said. That this is a promise that the Spirit will perfectly and infallibly, without error, bring to the disciples' minds all that Christ said and did. Not just in a historical account of the works of our Lord, but a theological account of His person and of His work. All that Christ began to do and teach is revealed for us in the four Gospels that we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the second thing that we see is the promise of the book of Acts. In our passage this morning, in in verse 13, Jesus promises that the Spirit will guide the disciples into all truth. We see on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit, after being poured out upon Christ's church, guides and empowers the disciples to preach and proclaim this glorious gospel of Christ to both Jew and Gentile. Christ, from His heavenly throne, continuing this to guide His people into all truth, right? All that Christ continued to do and teach from His heavenly throne. This is the book of Acts. We see promised here the books of the letters of the New Testament in John 16, verse 15, he says that the Spirit will take the things of Christ and declare them to you. The Holy Spirit, in and through the apostles, will go on to disclose and declare the mystery of Christ from the Old Testament. If you think about what the letters are about, they're saying that which the Old Testament spoke about has been fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. That which was hidden for all ages has now been revealed and made known to all nations, showing the fulfillment of the types and the shadows in Christ. And we see fourthly and finally the promise of the book of Revelation. Jesus says here in verse 13 that the Spirit will tell you of things that are to come. The Spirit will prepare God's people for the tribulation and the persecution that they will face for His name. The Spirit will prepare and tell of the glorious consummation of all things in the new heavens and the new earth, the things that are to come. And so, as we see the words of our Lord here, 
fulfilled in the inspiration of the New Testament, we see how the primary fulfillment is found in the apostles and in the inspiration of the 27 books of the New Testament. And so it's only secondarily that this promise finds its fulfillment in us, right? All of God's people. Only secondarily do we see how the Spirit will guide and lead all of God's people into the truth of God's Word. (laughs) How the Spirit will take the Word of Christ and declare it to us, the full and final revelation of God to His people. What does it say in Hebrews chapter 1? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And so we see the great promise of Christ that He will continue to speak to us by the revelation of Holy Scripture. But that leads us to our second point this morning, which is the divine illumination of the Spirit. The divine illumination of the Spirit. We see in our passage this great promise of the Spirit is not only for the apostles, but it is also for all of God's people. Not only for the revelation of God's Word, but for the divine illumination of Scripture. Because there's a difficult question that we have to ask ourselves as we think and consider this passage. And the question is this. How is this Word of God that's been revealed by the Spirit of God, how is it going to take root in the hearts of God's people? How is this revelation of Christ, of His person and of His work, how is it going to penetrate the blindness and the unbelief of fallen man? How is the light of the glory of Christ going to shine into the darkness of sinful man's hearts? We read this morning from 2 Corinthians that the, un, the minds of the unbelievers are veiled. As we sang this morning that in our sinful state we are fast bound in sin and nature's night. And so the question is, how is this going to happen? How is this darkness going to be penetrated? How is this unbelief going to be overcome? And the answer, brothers and sisters, is the illumination of the Spirit of God. The illumination of the Spirit of God. The Spirit taking the things of Christ and declaring them to His people. As we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, shining forth the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ into the very souls of God's people, illuminating the person and the work of Christ in and through the Word of God, or to use the four simple words of Christ's promise here in verse 14, He will glorify Me. (laughs) He will glorify Me. The Spirit will glorify Christ. What does Jesus say here? He says, He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you, that the Spirit of Christ will take the things of Christ and declare it to God's people, glorifying 
the incarnate Son of God, the only Savior of sinners, illuminating the hearts of God's people with the light of the gospel of the glory of God, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. We could say it like this, the Spirit's job is to make much of Christ, to glorify and magnify Him, His person, His work, so that we might really and truly understand, so that we might comprehend what Christ has done for us, so that we might come to a saving knowledge of Christ revealed to us only in the Word of God and only in the Gospel of God. And this is the only This is only made possible by this illuminating work of the Spirit. It's only made possible by this divine illumination of the Spirit, this new creation work of the Spirit of God, where before there was only darkness, ignorance to God and to His Word, blinded by Satan himself, veiled to the glory of Christ. Now, as we read, the light has shone in. As we sang about, the quickening ray of the Spirit flames the dungeon of our hearts with the light of Christ and with the light of the Gospel. Seeing Christ in all His glory, not with the eyes of the flesh, but with the eyes of faith. The Spirit removing the veil so that Christ may be seen truly, coming to a saving knowledge of God and His Word. This is the great work of the Spirit in God's people. That was even promised in Ezekiel 36, right? That I will put my spirit within you. This is the work that God will do. And so we see as we consider this passage that the spirit is not only necessary for the, for the scripture's inspiration and revelation, but also for the scripture's illumination, <laughs> The Spirit is necessary not only for the Scripture's inspiration, but for the Scripture's illumination to God's people, glorifying Christ and illuminating the Word of God. Now, many people in our day want to go looking for the Spirit. They want to go looking for the Spirit. Where is the next move of the Spirit? Where is the the Spirit of God going to show up next? And so they go looking for these external signs to see if they can find the work of the Spirit. Maybe it's supernatural healing signs and wonders. Maybe it's cultural and political change and reform. Maybe it's social justice and prosperity. And they look for the next experience, the next move of God, the thing that they can see with their eyes. But what we see in our passage is that the great work of the Spirit is actually to glorify and make much of Christ. To magnify and glorify Him. As one person said, the Spirit does not point to Himself, but to Christ. Not because the Spirit is lesser or inferior, but because this is the particular work of the Spirit given by Christ's bodily assumption. J.I. Packer has this famous illustration of what he calls the floodlight ministry of the Holy Spirit. The floodlight ministry of the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit's ministry can be compared to that of a floodlight at a football game. 
you've ever been to a football game, I think there's some games on today, right? The work of the floodlights is to shine the light on the field. You're not meant to look at the lights. You're not even meant to notice the lights. You don't see a lot of camera angles panning over to check out the cool lights. No, the lights are there to shine on what is on the field. The work of the lights is not focused on themselves so that we see them, but rather to make visible that which would otherwise be in the dark, illuminating and enlightening another. J.I. Packer says it like this, the Spirit's message is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, but is always, look at Christ. See His glory. Look to Him. Hear His word. Go to Him and have life. This is the paradoxical nature of the work of the Spirit, and it's really the exact opposite of how many in our day think and consider the work of the Spirit, that it is actually where Christ is preached that the Spirit is at work. It's where Christ is made much of that the Spirit is present. It's where Christ is declared and proclaimed that the Spirit is doing this great unseen work. But the third thing that we need to consider this morning, and the third thing that we need to see in our passage and that this passage reveals to us, is not only the unseen work of the Spirit, glorifying and illuminating Christ and His work, but the thing that we need to see this morning is the profound and mysterious revelation of our triune God that is made known to us in this passage, the unseen and eternal relations of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That brings us to our third and final point this morning, the eternal procession of the Spirit. The eternal procession of the Spirit. We've seen the special revelation of the Spirit in the Scriptures. We've seen the divine illumination of the Spirit in glorifying the work of Christ. And we see in our passage this profound and important doctrine of the eternal procession of the Spirit. Now, what does procession mean, right? It's just another way of saying the sending forth or the breathing out of the Spirit. Now, as a church, we frequently and often we recite and confess the great creeds of the faith, right? The Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, even in our own confession, we all confess that we believe that there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all these creeds and confessions go on to describe the relations of these persons in words like this, that the Father is neither begotten nor proceeding that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and that the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. This is the way, historically, of distinguishing the persons, and it's often referred to as the eternal relations of origin. The eternal relations of origin. Now, in the Gospel of John, we've spent some time considering the eternal generation of the Son. 
right? If you were with us all the way back at the beginning, John chapter 1, probably three years ago, (laughs) we looked at and considered the eternal generation of the Son, that the eternal Son of God is eternally begotten of the Father. John 1, 18 says that Christ is the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, the one that has made the Father known. But what do we mean when we confess that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, right? You've probably been here and and confessed those words, but maybe you've been like, I don't know what that means. (laughs) I'm not sure what I means when it says that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Well, we can say it like this, that just as the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, not created in time, having no beginning or end, so also the Spirit is eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son, not breathed forth or sent in time, but eternally proceeding, being sent forth, breathed out by the Father and the Son. But what does that have to do with this passage? (laughs) What does that have to do with John chapter 16? Well, this language of proceeding, of sending forth, has been all over John chapters 14 through 16. It's been all over. John chapter 14 verse 16 says, that Jesus says that the Father will give the Spirit and send the Spirit in Christ's name. This language of sending. John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus declares that He will send His disciples the Spirit who proceeds from the Father. This language of procession. And even in our own passage, this interesting language that Jesus uses in verse 14 He says that the Spirit will take from, or in some translation, the Spirit will receive from me. The Spirit will receive from me. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is a very important question. I can't stress this enough. This is the question that the early church was asking when it was faced with the divinity of the Spirit. Many people were coming in and saying the Spirit is not God. The Spirit is just a force. The Spirit is a third thing. It's not God. And this was the question that the early church was asking. How can the Spirit receive something from the Son while being co-equal with Him? Right? How can the Spirit of God receive something from the Son of God if they're co-equal and co-eternal? If you look at verse 13, how can the Spirit hear? What does it mean when when Jesus says that the Spirit will hear what is said? If God hears eternally, God knows all things. He doesn't come to know new information. Rather, God hears, we could say, eternally. So what does it mean? How can the Spirit hear if God knows all things. This language of of hearing, of speaking, of receiving is all very creaturely language. And so the heretics of the early church would take this passage to try to prove that the Spirit was not God, that the Spirit was lesser than the Father and the Son, that the Spirit was creature, that the Spirit maybe was even a third God or something like this. So how do we understand this passage? What is this language of receiving referring to? Well, the answer is that this human 
and accommodated language is pointing us above what our speech and our minds can comprehend, and it's pointing backward to the eternal procession of the Spirit. The eternal procession of the Spirit, that the, that the Spirit is eternally receiving His substance from the Father and the Son. The older language is consubstantial <laughs> with the Father and the Son. Listen to what one early church father said, Cyril of Alexandria. The reason Jesus says he will receive what is mine is because the Spirit is of the same substance as the Son and proceeds from him in a God-befitting way. This language of eternal begetting, this language of eternal proceeding is not saying that the Son and the Spirit are somehow breaking off a part of the divine nature. Nor are they multiplying or dividing the divine essence, not making the Spirit something inferior to the Father and the Son or subordinate in any way, not mutating or altering the divine nature, but it's referring to and revealing to the eternal relations of the triune God. The only way we are to distinguish the persons, not by roles, not by a hierarchy of authority, but by these eternal relations of origin. And so what we see in this passage is actually a window into the profound mystery of our triune God and the ways that the persons relate to one another. Or we could say it like this. I think this helps clear many things up. In verse 14, this is why the Spirit will glorify the Son perfectly. This is why the Spirit will speak for the Son perfectly, because He is very and eternally God. That just as the Son perfectly manifests the Father because He is eternally begotten from Him, John chapter 1, so likewise the Spirit perfectly manifests and glorifies the Son of God because He eternally proceeds from Him. That just as the Son acts and speaks for in the name of the Father, John chapter 14, verse 26, so also the Spirit acts for and speaks in the name of the Son. This is the great mission of the Spirit in time, poured out, speaking forth and receiving that which is Christ and declaring it to God's people, pointing us backward to the eternal procession of the Spirit. I was helped by these quotes from Pastor Chuck Rennie. He says this, The manner in which the persons go forth and proceed in time and in history reveals something about the way they proceed forth from one another in eternity. What God does in history is able to reveal to us who and what He is in eternity, right? In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. And now, at Pentecost, He has sent forth His Spirit. Even though these things happen in time, they reflect back upon the eternal way that God relates to Himself. Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. And so we see as we look at verse 15 that this is actually a great and glorious Trinitarian verse. He says, all that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he, that is the Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has belongs to the Son. All that the Son has belongs to the Spirit. And as one author said, the Spirit holds all things in common with the Father and the Son, showing His equality with them, right? This is the great and glorious revelation of what Christ has given us in John chapter, John chapter 16. One God in three persons, distinct yet co-equal and co-eternal. The Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and in the Son. And so as we step back from our passage this morning and we do the difficult work of thinking about and contemplating how this applies to us, the first thing that we need to see this morning is our great need for this illuminating work of the Spirit. Our great need for this illuminating work of the Spirit of God. Our great need for this revealing work of God's Spirit that we have for us, brothers and sisters, God's Word. We, we hold it in our hand. We, we pick it up. We have God's special revelation to us. We have all that we need for faith and for practice. But apart from this illuminating work of the Spirit, the Scriptures remain closed to us. We remain in the dark. Our hearts remain veiled to the truth of God's Word. And the question is, how is this undone? How is God's Word opened us to us? How are we guided into all truth? And the answer, as we already said this morning, it's only possible by this illuminating and efficacious work of the Spirit of God within the hearts of God's people, taking the things of Christ and declaring them to us. As we confess this morning in our confession of faith from our um, confession of faith, chapter 1, paragraph 6, it talks about the absolute necessity of the inward illumination of the Spirit of God in order to savingly understand the things that are revealed in the Word of God. The absolute necessity of the illumination of the Spirit to understand the things found in the Word of God, not with the eyes of the flesh, but rather with the eyes of faith. Because the truth is, we can understand the stories of Scripture, right? We can grow up hearing the stories of the Bible. We can comprehend the historical facts of the Old Testament. We can even believe in that there was a real person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can make accounts for the resurrection. You can know in, a, in an intellectual sense all of these things. But apart from the illuminating work of the Spirit of God, you cannot understand them savingly. You cannot know Christ truly. James tells us that even the demons believe that there is one God and tremble. The Pharisees knew the Scriptures most intimately. They had most of the Old Testament memorized, but they did not know the glory of Christ. What does Jesus say in John chapter 5, verse 39? Speaking to the Pharisees, He says, You search the Scriptures 
because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness to me. It is only in the Scriptures, revealed by the Spirit of God, bearing witness and glorifying to the Son of God, illuminated by the Spirit of God, that saves someone. As we've said so many times at this church, we don't need new revelation. We need divine illumination, right? We don't need new revelation from God. We need His already existing revelation to be illumined to us. We need the Spirit of God to illuminate and make much of Christ and Him. And so we can ask ourselves these difficult questions, right? When we think about and consider what we consume, what church we attend, that if something other than Christ and His Word is being emphasized, the question that we need to ask is, is the Spirit of God really at work? Or is it rather the work of men? As Calvin said, as soon as the Spirit is severed from Christ's Word, the door is open to all sorts of craziness. (laughs) As soon as the Spirit is severed from Christ's Word, the door is open to all sorts of craziness. And so we need the Spirit desperately. That's why we have a prayer of illumination, right? Before the sermon begins, that the Spirit of God might illuminate and make known to us what Christ has done for us. And so we pray and ask for the Spirit to do this work that only He can do. But that leads us to our second point of consideration, which is this, that the mission of the Spirit is a great comfort to Christ's church. The mission of the Spirit is a great comfort to Christ's church. That this pouring out, this sending of the Spirit in time on the day of Pentecost is a reminder of the great comfort that we have in the Spirit. And so maybe as we've been going through and discussing these things, this language of procession and mission, we can ask ourselves, is this practical? (laughs) Is this practical? What does this have to do with me? And my everyday life, as I try to raise my kids or go to my job, what does this language have to do with how we live our lives as Christians? Why does it matter? Well, not only is this important for maintaining our historic and orthodox faith of the Trinity, but we see in many ways that there is actually nothing more practical than this, that God has sent us His Son and God has sent us His Spirit. (laughs) Is there anything more practical than that? That God has sent us His Son, and God has sent us His Spirit. What did Jesus say in verse 7 of chapter 16? If I go, I will send Him to you. (laughs) That Christ has indeed sent us His Spirit. Not only in the invisible, or sorry, in the visible mission of the Spirit being poured out on the day of Pentecost upon Christ's church, but the invisible mission of the Spirit that is poured out into our very hearts, regenerating us, indwelling us by the Spirit of God. That which was promised in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, the promises of the new covenant of grace in Christ fulfilled. And there's this great passage 
in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, where we actually see these missions of the, Father, of the Son and the Spirit summarized for us. And we've, we've quoted this passage many times, but when I saw this, I was blown away. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4. Listen for this language of sending. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And listen to this in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, and because we are sons and daughters of God, God has sent forth His Spirit. The Spirit of adoption. The Spirit of regeneration. The Spirit of Christ. And so, so far from this being impractical or merely an abstract Christian doctrine, it is actually of great comfort to God's people. Listen to what John Owen said about this passage. It is itself a great principle of consolation unto all true believers, an effectual means of their support and refreshment, to consider that not only is the Holy Spirit their comforter, but also that He is sent of the Father and the Son. Then he says this, nor can there be a more uncontrollable evidence of the care of Jesus Christ over His church and towards His disciples in all their sufferings and sorrows than this, that He sends the Spirit to be their comforter. Right? Christ has given us His Spirit. He has poured out the Spirit upon His church, caring for and comforting His church, indwelling and continually filling God's people, active in the life of God's people, leading them into all truth, present with Christ's church till the end of the age, pointing them to Christ and His finished work. This is the, the practical nature of the mission of the Spirit. And that really leads us into our third and final point of consideration this morning. And that's this. That as we consider and reflect and think upon these things, that our prayer this morning is that we would ultimately see the glory of Christ. That we would ultimately see the glory of Christ revealed by the Word of God and illuminated by the Spirit of God, that we would see with the eyes of faith the glory of Christ, the glory of Christ in the Old Testament, fulfilling the promises and the types and the shadows, the glory of Christ and of His kingdom that has come now in our hearts and will come fully and finally at the end of the age, the glory of Christ and His incarnation taking upon Himself our very nature so that He might live the perfect life that we could not. The glory of Christ's cross, His perfect and substitutionary death for unworthy sinners. The glory of Christ and His resurrection as the first fruits of our coming resurrection. The glory of His Word, His special revelation to us 
His full and final complete word to us. The glory of His gospel, salvation, in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. The glory of His church, instituted by Christ Himself and constituted by the Spirit. The glory of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That this is the great work and mission of the Spirit, revealing to us the Word of God, illuminating and glorifying Christ in His person and work, and indwelling and filling God's people till the end of the age. Let's thank Him and praise Him for what He's done. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You for what You have done for us in Christ and by the Spirit of God. We thank You and praise You that we indeed have Your Word, a firm foundation, and we can sing with confidence, what more could You say than has already been said? There's nothing, there's nothing that You could reveal to us that You've not already told us the fullness of Christ's person and work in the gospel. And we praise you and thank you for revealing this to us. And we pray this morning that as we consider and think upon your word, that by the power of your spirit, you would illuminate our hearts to see and understand these things and rest upon Christ this morning. And as we consider who you are and what you have done for us in sending your son and pouring forth your Spirit, you would give us strength to believe and hold fast to who you are, and most importantly, adore you, our triune God. We love you, Lord. We thank you and praise you for this great work that you have done for us, and we ask and pray these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.